I know that the video might have been a bit heavy, and I'm just warning you now that the sermon today is a bit heavy. But I think it's appropriate to talk about difficult things at church, because we live in a world that is full of pain and suffering, that is full of injustice, and if we can't talk about it here, where can we talk about it? You know, sometimes it is said that the Bible is a misogynist book. Have you ever heard that? People who have claimed that the Bible portrays women as uh, inferior, second-class citizens, that they're bystanders at best, and that the writers of the Bible and that God himself seem to put women down and promote somehow the injustice and the oppression of women. But as a woman, I study these passages, and while I admit that it is definitely challenging to read them at face value and, and try to grapple with and understand uh, the role of these women uh, in that situation, the more I study these passages, the more I find that actually God and the writers of the Bible are actually challenging the status quo. They actually challenged the historical treatment of women in that day, uh, and not just women, but children and other people who are marginalized and in the outskirts of society, and that God continually actually called out the abusers, called out those especially leaders of injustice, and wanted people to bring about change. And so today's sermon title is called The Worst Story in the Bible. The Worst Story in the Bible. It's a very graphic story, a tragic story, and you could even say it's a controversial story because this story has no heroes. This story does not have a happy ending. And you could even, some would say, it has no redeeming factors. Even one commentator, F.B. Meyer, even said, don't even read it. He said, read the first verse of Judges 19 and then skip the rest of the book because he said it's so horrific. And I must admit that as a little girl, when I first read Judges, you know, you try to read through the Bible. And I remember when I first read this story, it was deeply traumatic as a child. And as a woman, it still is profoundly offensive. But like I said, I think it is appropriate and even necessary for us to examine these types of stories in the Bible in order for us to raise awareness of the fact that these kinds of injustices happen and to understand what our appropriate response should be. So this distasteful passage or this difficult topic is found in Judges 19. And we're going to be looking at the story from the actual Bible, but just to give you a little context, it's about a Levite who was a religious leader. And I think that makes the story even more atrocious, but at the same time, that much more relevant, especially for us today living in a world where whenever religious leaders abuse someone who is vulnerable, they often go unpunished. They often go with impunity. And I think it's, it's actually a very good thing that the Bible points out that this religious leader, this Levite, has committed this great injustice. And instead of sweeping it under the rug, actually brings it out publicly, writes it down, and actually wants the people to do something about it. Let's turn to Judges 19, and we're going to let the writer tell the story as it was. And like I said, there are no heroes, there is no happy ending, and it is a very uh, graphic story, rated M, and so there are no children here, so um, who can understand. And so we're going to read it as it is. So turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 1, and uh, periodically I'll stop and skip a little bit just to expedite the story. But we'll start reading in Judges chapter 19, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. 
he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having a servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Up until now, so far, so good. But what happens is, just to, to get the story moving, he stays there at the father-in-law's house, and the father-in-law says, come, stay, let's eat, you know, stay, don't leave today. They, and he ends up staying for five days. For five days. Now, at the end of his time there, on the fifth day, he decides, you know what, I can't wait any longer, so let's pick up back in verse 9. When the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing towards evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here, that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early, so that you may go home. However, the man was not willing to spend the night, so he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. Verse 11. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. Now here what happens is, because he didn't want to go to the foreign city, they choose to go even further. Now, now it's really late at night to Gibeah, which is part of the Benjamite tribe, their land. And they get there, and they're hoping that somebody will invite them in. That was actually the custom of the time, that when you're traveling through the land, you would go into the city square, and you know they didn't have inns and motels and hotels like we would say. But because the culture uh, valued hospitality, it was customary that if a sojourner were to go to the city square, any one of the people who would see you were supposed to invite you into their house and offer you hospitality. So expecting hospitality from their fellow uh, countrymen, this little traveling group go to the city square, but to their surprise, no one invites them in. No one invites them in. So let's pick up a story where they're, they're kind of in verse end of 15. No one would take them into his house to spend the night, 16. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And basically he asked them, where are you going? And he actually extends hospitality. Um, let's go down to verse 21. So he brought him into his house, gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And here is where the story turns incredibly ugly. Verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, and suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door, they spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally, or have sex with him, as some NIV would say. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please, but to this man do no such vile thing. But the man would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master rose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine, fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. 
And he said to her, Get up, and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Verse 30. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. This is a terrible, terrible story. It's a terrible story in so many ways because as you read it, as I read it, it makes me angry. It makes you angry at the heartless um, Levite who would treat his woman this way. It makes you angry at the host who, whose values are so misguided that he would value his male guest over his female guest. It makes you angry at the Benjamites who would um, victimize this woman in such a way. It makes you angry at, at just I mean, everybody in the story except for the victim. There is no hero in this story. I warned you. So why is this story in the Bible? Why was this story recorded at all? You know, people often misunderstand the Bible. They think that if there is a story in the Bible, that somehow that means that God actually endorsed it. And so a lot of people, like I said earlier, who, who, who accuse the book um, for being a misogynist book, will point to a story like this and say, See? How could this be uplifting of women? But I think they're missing the point. This story is written here not for, for, um, for it to say, yep, this is how God wants it. This story is written here to say, this is what happens. This is what happens when people disregard God. This is what happens when we actually don't follow God and marginalize and victimize people. And if you think about it, from Genesis with Adam and Eve onwards throughout the whole Bible, the Bible is full of stories of people who actually mess up and make terrible decisions. And so if you're looking to the Bible to, to provide only positive examples, you'll be very disappointed because most of the Bible actually is about people who have made terrible decisions and about a God who tries to reason with these people, a God who tries to say, look, my principles of loving me and loving your neighbor as yourself that principle is what will lead to a healthy, happy, and holy community. And if you depart from that, you're going to end up with injustice and pain and suffering and violence. This story portrays a community that has forgotten God and disregarded what he has prescribed. And when we look at this story, there's a few uh, themes that come up repeatedly that help us understand it. And um, in the very beginning, in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, and it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was dot, dot, dot. That phrase, there was no king in Israel, gets repeated four times in the last several chapters of the book of Judges. And this story, actually, I told you, there is no happy ending. At this point of the story, after the Israelites learn about this atrocity, you would think that there would be some good and justice. But in fact, the story gets even more twisted, I'm sorry to say. And there's actually more raping of women. Um, there's a bloody civil war. More people die. And at the very, very end of the series of, of unfortunate events, at the very end of the story, in the, at the end of the book of Judges, look at the very last verse, chapter 21, verse 25. Chapter 21, verse 25. It says, In those days there was what? 
Are you there? Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Read it again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Professor Granville Kent, um, he has uh, given some commentary on this story. And he pointed out how there's a motif in this story, uh, in the book of Judges, of eyes. And he talks about how in the beginning of the book of Judges, God's eyes are over Israel. And Israel is repeatedly doing bad things and repeatedly rebelling against God. But they cry out to God in their distress. And God sends a judge. The judge delivers the people out of the trouble that they've gotten themselves into. And that happens over and over and over again. But as the story continues in the history of Israel, we get to the middle of the book, around chapter 15, and we have... The story of Samson. Now, as we get to the story of Samson, do you remember what happens to Samson towards the, after um, what happened with Delilah? What did the Philistines do to Samson? Do you remember? They gouged out his eyes. And Professor Granville Kent points out how at that point of the book of Judges, references to God's eyes are now taken away. It's almost as if Samson's eyes being gouged out is a symbolic moment, literal to Samson, but also a symbolic moment where God's eyes no longer matter to the people. They have rejected God. They don't care what he sees. They don't care how he thinks. They do what they think is right in their own eyes. So starting from Samson's death onwards, we get this state of affairs. And when the phrase, the refrain, there was no king, that phrase is not just saying that this is an anarchy. It's not just saying there's no political leader. When it says there was no king in Israel, what it's implicating is that there was no allegiance to God as king. Because before, if you remember, when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, God led them. God was their king. God was their leader. But what happened over time is that the people said, I don't want God as leader. I want to do my own thing. And the more they rebelled, the more they rebelled, they got to the point where they just completely shoved God out of the way. And therefore, there was no king in Israel. They had rejected him. The people went from seeing with God's eyes to seeing with their own eyes. And we see the result in this terrible story. For example, you have the host Rather than valuing all human life as equal, he's looking through his own eyes. He does what he thinks is right. He thinks to himself, ah, hospitality. I have to protect my male guests. It doesn't occur to him. He does what he thinks is right. Meanwhile, the Levite, he, think, he does what he thinks is best for himself, of course, through self-centered eyes. One commentator labels this story the death of morality. That when we disregard God's moral codes as a society and as individuals, there is violence, grotesque tragedy, and marginalization. That whenever you disregard morals, it's always the weakest and the most vulnerable who get victimized. God's word demands a much higher morality. That we have to treat our neighbors as ourselves. And if you remember in the gospel, when someone asks, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus makes it very clear that your neighbor is actually the very last person you think of. It's usually the person that your culture and your personal inclinations would shun. That is your neighbor. That is the opposite of what the natural human heart wants to do. What would this story have looked like if God were given leadership and control? In the beginning of the book of Judges, 
we see uh, that God had multiple judges that judge Israel. And in the beginning of the book, how, how are women treated? Do you remember who one of the judges were in the beginning of the book when God's eyes were, were sought after? We had a woman leader named Deborah. She was a wife. She was a judge. She was a prophet. She had it all, right? She had it all. And we see how she is a leader, and she is respected, and she, she commands um, the military men to fight. She leads them into victory. And so when God is in charge and when God is king, men and women are treated with respect. And then we get to this point, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Victimization of the vulnerable happens. What bothers me about this story, though, is when I read this story, I wonder, I wonder to myself, okay, so they rejected God, but where was God? Why didn't he intervene? Why didn't he do something? If you remember in the story of Lot, um, when the angels were there, God intervened. The people uh, were struck blind, and they couldn't find the door, and they left. Why didn't God intervene now, here? Why did this story have to end this way? Was God silent? Was God absent? I don't know why he didn't intervene this time. I don't know why God doesn't intervene in the moments in our lives, in the moments of many people's lives today where injustices happen and persecution happens um, and people suffer and even die. We have to grapple and we have to wrestle with the fact that some things we cannot answer. But I can say that the Bible never promises the absence of pain and suffering, even death. But it does promise that one day there will be an end to this injustice and that there is someone who will make the wrong right. Finally, a hero. Professor Granville Kent calls the book of Judges a book of anti-heroes. And what he means by that is that this book is full of people who are terrible heroes. When you think of a hero, you want someone who is heroic, right? You want someone who does the right thing. But the book of Judges is full of people who are supposed to be heroes, who are terrible people. For example, the best you know, heroes we have in the book of Judges are like Samson. You know, we all love Samson. But if you think about it, Samson was a terrible hero. Because, yeah, he was strong, but he was morally weak. Or you have Gideon. You know, we love Gideon. He conquered with 300 men. You know, forget 300 Persians, like this guy did with 300 guys. But he was a coward. And he became an idolater and led the whole nation into idolatry. So this book is full of anti-heroes. And this story is the last story of these anti-heroes. Like I said, in, in this story, there is no hero. Everybody messes up. And in fact, this narrative does not identify the names of any of the individuals. Did you notice? They're all anonymous. It's a story of, of anti-heroes. But the story longs for a hero. When you read this story, don't you wish somebody had stepped up and protected her? Don't you wish somebody had, had just come in and just ended it all? Don't you wish someone, even that the Israelites, after this happened, would have done some kind of right thing instead of, as you can read later for yourself, all the wrong things that they go, uh, go on and do? And when we read that last verse of the Judges, in the book of Judges, when it says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Don't we long for a king? Don't we then say, "Give us that king who will do what is right." Period. And the question is, is there such a king? Is there such a hero? I invite you, if you have your Bibles in front of you,、um, you read that last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as we're left hungering for our hero, right? Hungering for you know, it's almost like have that song playing in your head. We need a hero, right? Somebody come along and save us from this terrible situation. And if you go in your Bible to the very next verse, what does it say? Ruth, chapter one. Verse one. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So this is the same time period of the terrible anti-hero time. That there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. And then we have this story of how these two sons married the women of Moab, and one of those women was named Ruth. And we have this lovely story of this woman. Who was a foreigner, and she could have stayed in Moab, but chooses of her own desire to go to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And Dean, you've heard this story. She says to her mother-in-law, "Where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God." So here is someone at last declaring, "I'm going to choose God." And then we have this lovely story where she goes to Bethlehem, and you know this love story happens between her and Boaz. And here is a foreign woman who actually could have been abused and victimized, just as the the woman in Judges 19 could have been. But instead, finally, we have Boaz, who actually tells his servants, "Don't you dare touch her! Don't you dare hurt her!" And he actually protects her. And in the Book of Ruth, Boaz is called the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, because he actually is related to、uh, Naomi. And what he does, he he redeems the whole family. He marries Ruth, and Ruth and Boaz have a son, and that son is the ancestor to King David. At last, here is the hero. That's the story it has been longing for. The hero that becomes the king, and eventually, King David becomes the ancestor to Jesus Christ Himself. When we look at these two stories, there's a few parallels that are very interesting to note. The victim in chapter 19 of Judges, if you remember、uh, the concubine, she was actually from Bethlehem, the very place that Jesus will be born. And if you remember in Judges 19, the Levites, the concubine servants, they travel with donkeys because they want to find a place to stay. They travel with their donkey, but there is no shelter. No one will provide shelter for them. And we know that later on in history, Joseph and Mary travel with their donkey, but there is no room for them either. The Levites could have turned into the city of Jebus with the Jebusites, but instead passes it by to go to Gibeah in the Benjamite land. Ironically, Gibeah is where Saul comes from, who becomes the first king. But as we know, he did what was right in his own eyes. So then God replaces him with David, who does according to God's heart most of the time. But King David、um, conquers the city of Jebus, which is actually Jerusalem. And it's in the city of Jerusalem that later Jesus Christ does a lot of his ministry, healing, lifting up, binding up the wounds. But it's also in the city of Jerusalem that we see another victim, 
It's in the city of Jerusalem that we see another violent tragedy. Because it's there in the city of Jerusalem that we see not only, again, religious leaders committing murder through the high priest on downwards. We see political leaders failing through Pilate and the others. But we also see, again, an angry, murderous, violent mob that cries out, crucify him. And we see, once again, the victim of violence, this time Jesus on the cross. And the question is, how can another victim of violence actually be the hero? How can it that a victim of injustice can actually be our king? Is he the hero that we long for? Is he the hero that can change all this? And I present to you today that he is, and this is how. Not only can Jesus understand us in our pain and in our, in our hunger for, for justice, because he has experienced the injustice and the pain and the suffering and the betrayal, but not only did he understand us, but he actually pays the price for the abusers themselves. Here's what I mean. A Christian counselor once had us do this mental exercise. He said, picture your worst memory. The most painful memory that you have in your heart. The moment that haunts you. The memory that make, made you wonder, then and perhaps even now, where were you, God, in that moment? And the counselor tells us, in, as you picture that memory that haunts you, and as you, as you think about and you and as you, as you begin to feel hurt and anger, and you, and you wonder, where were you, God, in that moment? The counselor said, take out your anger. Take out your frustration. Take it out on, on Jesus. And he said, picture yourself taking that nail, taking that hammer, and go ahead. Take out your anger on God. He said, nail him to the cross. And as you are taking the nail in your hand and the hammer in the other and saying, Jesus, you weren't there for me. Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you do something? Why did I have to go through that suffering? And as you're nailing Jesus to the cross, also picture Jesus turning to you, not screaming in pain, not shouting in anger or telling you that you're wrong and that you're mistaken, not protesting and, and justifying, but all he says is he turns to you with infinite love and compassion in his eyes and says, Father, Forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. Father, forgive him, for he doesn't understand what's going on. And it's in that moment that as we are pouring out our anger and our frustration and blaming God for the, for the hurt in our lives, it's in that moment that we realize we're the ones who actually nailed him to the cross. We're actually wrong that this man, Jesus, is innocent and that he's paying the price for my sins. And I think it's in that moment that we realize that we are both victim and perpetrator, sinner and wrongdoer, that we can confess, Jesus, I can't do right. When I follow what is right in my own eyes, I hurt myself, others, and yourself. I'm selfish and my vision is clouded. You be the king of my life. Help me to do right in your eyes. In the video that we saw earlier, it said that one in three women in the world face some kind of violence in their lifetime. One in three. What that statistic tells me is that the root of the problem is not socioeconomical. It's not 
religious. It's not societal. It's not this country, that country. One in three around the world means that in every culture, every religion, every socioeconomic class, that this problem is pandemic to the whole world. It tells me that the root of the problem goes deeper to the universal level of every human being. As Rebecca Orient shared a few weeks ago, the problem of injustice and suffering in the world begins and ends with the selfish human heart, with my selfish human heart. There are things that we can and should do to end violence against women, um, campaigning, you know, signing petitions, visiting women's shelters, affirming women in your life. There's a lot of things we can do. But the greatest way to prevent and end violence against women and children and all marginalized people in society is to look at our own attitudes. Do I care what is right in God's eyes? Or am I only concerned about what feels right and what I think is right in my own eyes? Is Jesus the king of my life? Or am I sitting as judge, judging Jesus or judging everyone else and blaming them? How could the Levite do that? How could those people do that? And sitting ourselves as judge when at the same time I'm mistreating people all the time snubbing the people I don't like, passing by the needy without a second look, neglecting the people in my sphere of influence. Am I the judge, or am I willing to let God be judge? Letting him work out his justice in his own time. Letting him be the agent of change. And letting that change begin with me. It's not evil men who commit evil deeds. After the terrible atrocities of the Holocaust, during the Nuremberg trials, it was a mystery how men who could be so loving and kind to their families or to select groups of people, could have no compassion or empathy for the millions of people that they annihilated. And this mystery was difficult for people to understand, but what it came down to was that when people compartmentalize their emotions, and remove, it removes all possibility of compassion. And when we lack the heart to treat and see everyone as equal, we do the very same thing. If we think that we're safe from that, then that's truly when we're in the danger zone. We're not safe because, as one uh, commentator in the NIV application commentary says, we are infected with the same self-interest cancer. Just like the host in Judges 19, most of us can provide reasonable hospitality, but we are programmed by our societal principles to function along the axis of expedience, whatever is convenient. And when we're Confronted with a moral dilemma, we do what is right in our own eyes, what feels right. And we can't see the victims then. We don't even notice that there are victims at the workplace, at the marketplace, in our church. This is what the commentator says, in, uh, his name is Block. He says, this book and the history of the nation that follows serve as eternal testimony to the grim reality that God's people are often their worst enemy. It is not the enemies outside who threaten the soul, but the Canaanite within. The ultimate root of the problem is not the influence of the culture around us. Rather, it is our unwillingness to believe, to take God at his word, and then to obey. We need to submit ourselves, our inherent sinfulness, to the transforming work of the Spirit. In other words, it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, how can people do that out there? But the real problem, like I say, is not about the people out there. It's about the sinfulness in each of our hearts. And if we cannot let God be king in our own lives, how can God be king in our community, in our society? If we are not willing to surrender and submit our sinfulness and our, and our unwillingness to see with God's eyes, how can we expect others to follow those moral principles? In Revelation chapter 3, 
God describes the Laodicean generation as thinking that they're rich, thinking that they have no need, thinking they're righteous, thinking they're great people. And God says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. God is saying to us today, stop seeing with your own eyes. When you do that, very quickly, you're going to end in violence and suffering for everyone. See with my eyes. See with my eyes. My prayer for us here at the exchange is that we would submit ourselves to God. That we would surrender our prideful thinking that somehow we're better than, but to ask Him to anoint us with His eye so that we can look and discern and act according to His judgments. To take God at His word and obey His principles of justice and mercy so that together we can end violence against women, against children, against all those who are marginalized. And that together we can nurture a safe community where we will acknowledge God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, so that His will be done, so that His kingdom can come. Amen. Roy is um, going to sing a song about surrender, and I'll be helping him. The words are going to be on the screen, I believe. And so, as you sing the song, if you could just, you can sing with us if you like, but in your hearts also, just say that prayer to God and invite Him to be the King.
Father God, oftentimes we blame you for the injustice in the world. But Father, you have created us to do something about it. And I ask that you would give us courage to do something. That you would help us first to submit ourselves to you so that we can let you transform our hearts. So that we can be good agents of change instead of making things worse as we see in the book of Judges. And Father, we ask that in our own lives, when we have those moments where we wonder where you are and we have those moments of terrible suffering and injustice, that we would long for a hero and recognize that that hero is you, that we would trust you, that in your own time justice will prevail, and that as King of Kings you will make right all the wrongs. And Father, until that day, help us to do our best to lift one another up and to help nurture this community and to create a safe place where people who have been victimized can finally, finally be treated as equals and to be treated as sons and daughters of God. And so I, I pray and I long for your Holy Spirit to transform us, starting with me. I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.